I have to make a lot of very quick decisions in a short amount of time and in a very dangerous kind of situation. So like that kind of adrenaline and immediacy, like that's really where I'm finding that right now in my practices in the yards. And it's kind of satisfying that need that I have. I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Kennedy Yanko is not afraid to take up space. This week, the Brooklyn-based sculptor unveiled her largest work yet at Art Basel, a 20-foot-tall hanging sculpture titled By Means Other Than the Known Senses. The title describes how Yanko often creates her work through exploration and a whole lot of intuition. The apricot green and gray work is a tornado of cascading metal forms. At first blush, it's impossible to tell just how much it weighs since it's suspended in the air. As it turns out, it weighs a lot. It's created from a monumental shipping container that Yanko scrunched, reformed, and selectively covered in paint skin. When she's done, the sculpture looks so alive it almost feels like it's breathing. Yanko's star has been steadily rising over the past few years. Last year, she became the first sculptor to earn the coveted residency at the Rubel Museum in Miami. Now, she's unveiling her work at Art Basel Unlimited, the section dedicated to large-scale projects at the world's most prestigious art fair. Ahead of the fair, which runs through Sunday, I spoke with Kennedy from her hotel room in Switzerland. Welcome, Kennedy. Thank you for joining us on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be here today. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Basel, Switzerland. At the moment, I'm sitting in my hotel room on a sunny day, setting up an installation for Unlimited right now. We're going to talk a lot about that a little bit later. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are and the elements of your work. And so my first question is about sort of the two principal elements in your work. You use found metal and paint skins to create these kind of mesmerizing confusing sculptures. So first, can you tell us what is a paint skin? A paint skin is maybe my greatest and longest love. (laughs) Paint skin started in 2009. So basically, I had a show in 2009 called Wu Wei, and I was pouring paint onto canvases, and I was getting these really beautiful kind of fractal-like details from the way that the paint was interacting with itself. And The night of that opening, I was just looking around the room and I thought to myself, like, oh, wow, I really I need to take paint off of the canvas. So, you know, I thought about it for like a year and then I finally started doing my first pours of skins. And they were these very thin latex based skins that kind of looked like marbleized paint in space. And I was installing the skins on the wall and hanging them from the ceiling and just kind of beginning to think about paint as a medium with a lot of different multitudes and how it can show up in space. So that was the beginning of paint, which developed a lot over the last 12 years. I basically worked with skins by themselves for a couple years. And then I started working with this rubber where I would roll out the rubber and then I would throw the paint onto the rubber in the air and it would like atom bomb. And I would then take my body underneath the rubber and expand on the composition that had shown up. And then I'd cut it out and I'd install it on the wall three-dimensionally. And then I'd start to work through it as if it was one of my canvases. 
then I started to use the skins almost like the basis of canvases for myself. And I was beginning to engage with this conversation of the three dimension, but really working through painting. And I worked like that for about seven years. Mm. So there have been many iterations of the paint skins and continue to be one of my main focal points of experimentation to this very moment. And how did you land on the combination of the paint skins and the found metal? So the rubber paintings, I worked like that for about seven years. After seven years of painting like that, there was a point in my studio where I had canvases on the wall and I had rubber works on the wall. And then I had started to bring in other materials like wood and marble and just all these different things to kind of work with the skins. And I don't know, it was a February in New York and I was just super depressed and I was really tired of painting. Like I was just tired of doing what I was doing. And there was a welding, an iron factory next door to my studio. And I was like, hey, I'd love to apprentice with you guys. I'd love to learn how to work with metal. So I started working with sheet metal and I was just learning how to weld, how to cut it, how to measure it, like learning the different machines and the tools and just kind of really understanding like what and where that medium is used mostly in our world and like how to use it. And I didn't go into that with the idea like, oh, I'm going to use metal in my work. I wanted to move my hands in a different way. I needed to do something to get myself out of whatever musty place I was in. And metal really became that for me in that time. So I was just working with sheet metal and I had brought some pieces back to my studio that I was playing around with in the factory. And I thought, oh, the skins would be really nice on here. The skins could really interact here, but it wasn't all the way there yet. And then I did the Fountainhead residency in Miami about three months after my apprenticeship. And that was the first time that I was welding on my own. It was the first time that I had a studio space where I could do my pores and where I could weld and then a space where I could really even put them together in some way. And before I went to that residency, I made a really clear decision that I was only going to work with found metal. So the found metal answered so many things for me just as far as like structurally, like there had clearly been some kind of skeletal system that I'd been searching for in some way for this medium subconsciously and bringing in the found materials, the found metal, it offered so much history and story and and really almost the perfect reciprocity to the sensuousness of the paint skins. Hmm. So it was just pretty clear to me in that time that like, this is something that I've been looking for and this is what I'm probably going to be experimenting with for a long time moving forward. So you source that metal from scrapyards up and down the East Coast. What is the process like of looking for them? And how do you decide what piece of metal is going to make a good component in your sculpture? I'm always looking for places to source metal. Like I'm actually a huge liability to the yard. So the people who do let me work there, they're letting me work there because they're excited about what I'm doing and they're excited about something different going on and they want to see what happens. It's not easy to have access to the yards, but anywhere in the world, they're there. So I can find metal anywhere I go. And basically for my studio in New York, we'll go out to Philly or we'll go down to Baltimore or we'll go out to Staten Island and stuff and just looking for the right materials. But Pulling up to the yard, you know, it's a little bit of a spectacle. I don't know if you have you ever been to a metal yard before? No. Yeah, it's like walking into the apocalypse a little bit. So there's 30 feet high of metal, like a big pile of metal. There are these huge trucks with these magnets that are like picking it off the ground and then swinging it up into space. And there's a bunch of cars that are like unloading it. And it's usually pretty muddy. There's probably smoke around somewhere and fire around somewhere. And for me, in those moments, I'm starting with color. And I'm always starting with color. Mm. So a lot of the metal that you're seeing, a lot of the colors are the original colors. And the deterioration is a lot of the deterioration that's already there. And I am 
starting with that. And then I'm kind of looking at like what particular kind of steels there are. So I don't really like working with aluminum. I don't like working with car parts. I'm looking for a kind of like thick, girthy metal that has a certain kind of presence and stature to it, but is also light enough that I can potentially pick it up. Yeah. So most of the time it's a hunt. We're driving around, I'm hunting for metal. And my background in painting was always kind of as an action painter. So when I was working on these canvases, I was confronting them with momentum and immediacy. And when you do that, you have to be very present with what's in front of you, but you also have to be very aware of your peripheral, like everything that's happening at once. So working as an action painter, working as someone who is kind of going through immediate emotions, I kind of receive that in my practice now in the metal yards because I have to make a lot of very quick decisions in a short amount of time and in a very dangerous kind of situation. So like that kind of adrenaline and immediacy, Mm. like that's really where I'm finding that right now in my practices in the yards. And it's kind of satisfying that need that I have. I'm picturing you like in this vast wasteland, like Mad Max style. (laughs) (laughs) With like smoke just like billowing and fires and yeah, it's a very vivid image. I love it. And I'm going to try to explain part of your process and you're going to have to tell me if I have explained it poorly or wrong and I can go again. So this is sort of based on what I've read, but bringing these two materials together, the paint skins and the scrap metal is a very time sensitive process. So to create your skins, as far as I understand it, You pour industrial paint onto a tarp and wait for it to solidify sort of just enough to be malleable so that you can affix them to the metal sculptures. First of all, is that accurate? Yeah, it's close enough without giving away all my secrets. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just with that basic understanding, that requires such a deep connection with the materials. Your understanding of the materials has to be in your body. How did you develop that kind of sensitivity and kind of communion with the material? That's a beautiful question. Thank you. I think it all really started with Wu Wei with that show in 2009 when I was pouring on canvases because what I realized in that moment, there was one particular canvas in general where I came downstairs. I was working on a garage floor in my parents' house and I poured on a canvas and it was kind of slanted. And when I came downstairs, like the whole thing had totally shifted and moved At that time, I was also practicing and teaching Qigong and doing a lot of philosophy research on Taoism and kind of Eastern ideas. And that to me was a really seminal moment in understanding that I am really kind of having to submit to this work Hmm. and that the more I allow it to show me the way, the better the work is going to be. A lot of my practice is like me getting out of the way of what's happening here and what can happen here. And I think just in kind of surrendering to the cyclical nature of process and practice, and then to the cyclical nature of what it means to make each piece, which means I understand how to make each piece, even though each one is totally different. I have some kind of idea of what that process is going to be like. And then my job is to either create more space around it or to refine that a little bit more. I think there's been this very natural evolution in my career as an artist and then within each individual piece where it's like every single time I'm learning something new, but I can enter the space with this general understanding of what's going to happen, but I have to leave myself open to what the reality is and what it really is. It does seem like so much of your work is about the confrontation between your body and the material. 
Before you became a sculptor, you spent three years working with the New York Experimental Cedar Group, Living Cedar, and also had a pretty serious yoga and physical training practice. So as an artist at the same time, as you mentioned, your work can be likened to action painting or performance. And so I'm wondering, you know, what role does your body play in the creation of your work? I feel that there's a couple different ways in which my body informs my work and informs me. I think in general, I'm using it as a tool or an extension of my mind in the same way that I would use like a drill or working with the machines that it's kind of like I'm here and then there's like another thing here. So I think about my body as more of an attunement source. I spoke recently at a symposium with Hans Erlich Obris about the ideas of expansion and contraction. And for me, in making decisions around what's going to happen next to my work, whether it's an immediate or like something that I kind of think through over time, I always am trying to go from expansion or contraction. So for me, an internal expansion is something where maybe I light up a little bit inside. Maybe I feel more open inside. Maybe it just feels right and feels good. And a contraction is something where it's like, it's unclear, it's unsure. It's just not as obvious. So I'm usually functioning off of that kind of intuitive resource through my body's physical reaction to things. So that can be either when I'm making color choices and decisions, or if I'm taking on projects, or if I'm interacting with another person. It's like, that's really the compass that I'm using in order to make my next decision by. It's just interesting to me because it's being in touch with your body, but it's also about being really deeply in touch with intuition. And so I wonder how you developed that. Did you always have that kind of connection to your own compass? No, absolutely not. I'm like this because of the deep disconnect. I'm looking for feeling because of how disconnected I could have been in the past or I was in the past, or even if I can be in the current moment, if I'm disassociating from things. I'm constantly talking about this practice. It's because it's maybe one of my deeper insecurities that I need to understand better. Hmm. And I think that in honing in on that, what happens is that when your mind is making decisions, and your heart or your body is going in a different way, there's an immediate conflict that happens. So I talk a lot about our conditioning or how we understand the world or what are concrete things that we've decided are right. And so for me, I'm constantly always trying to look at something that I've decided is concrete or true or right, and then challenging that within myself. So I think in that intuitive muscle and working that, it has a lot to do with having to look at what it is that I believe what I believe is truth and then what my body or what my intuition or my gut is telling me is my actual truth. And very often they're in conflict with each other. And I think that's a much deeper and longer conversation that goes into kind of our systemic values of our world and how we move through the world, how we interact with each other. And I think that, you know, my art practice has been for myself, at least like this microcosm of a way that I can kind of work through my contribution or understanding my truth in the world on a smaller scale in real time in the studio. Hmm. Well, and speaking of intuition and vision, your most recent exhibition in Sweden, which was called Moving Weight, pairs your work alongside abstract art pioneer and mystic Hilma Afklimt, who has her own kind of intuitive practice. Do you see through lines between the two of your practices and kind of what connection do you feel to her work? The show with Helma was really important to me for a few reasons. First and foremost, I have been diving into conversations around metaphysics and consciousness in general around my work. And I 
kept getting met with things that didn't seem to elicit a deeper conversation and dialogue around that, because what I'm really interested in is opening that dialogue of experience for myself and for my viewers. And I didn't know how to really catapult that conversation in a way that made it really clear where we could get through the noise and start to talk about consciousness and experience versus necessarily like referencing the art history or philosophy directly. And that's what I'm really interested in my practice and my contribution in art is like how I can talk through my process in the most immediate, intimate way. With Hilma, I actually discovered her work through writing. So I had read a lot about Hilma. I looked at pictures of her work. I really kind of started to understand her a lot as an artist in particular because I'm an autodidact. I'm self-taught and all the things that I'm doing are really like these accumulations of so many different life experiences and practices and mediums coming together. And so when I read about her and how she kind of made her body a conduit of devotion to the work, which means that everything else kind of goes away to the side. It just resonated with me in a really deep way. The fact that she was working through channeling, the fact that she was trying to figure out a way that she could contribute to art history. And what that meant for her was for her to take a step back because there was a whole world that she was up against Mm. that maybe she didn't have inside of her or maybe that that time in history didn't really even offer her the opportunity to take the space that was available. You know, I think right now at this time, my work, you know, I'm a woman, I'm working in sculpture, I'm taking on a lot of really audacious processes and practices. And I think I'm finding a lot of grounding in her and in her work. I really wanted to understand where she came from in some kind of sisterhood in a way. Because I think in general, like when I would read about her, it was either like an observation of her work or her practice. And I really wanted to enter through color and I wanted to enter through expression and form. Mm. And something that was so fascinating to me was that she was looking at these ideas of existence. And, you know, when I'm thinking about metal or when I'm thinking about my materials, I'm really ultimately interested in their atomic state and how I can reposition them in some kind of almost alchemical way. And I'm thinking about the transmutation of mind, of intention into object and into reality. And so for Hilma and I to come from such different places, but then to have such similarities within our visual language and such different mediums was really fascinating to me. I wanted to just immerse myself entirely in her world and her language. And that's really how I approach any show. My shows are really like, what is it that I'm really interested in that I'm researching right now? And and how can I expand on that idea? And how can that translate into my materials and my medium? And I really wanted to have my research go back to the spiritualism and how that's connecting through art history and where that's been dismissed within serious inquiry through academia and scholarship in the past. Hmm. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Hilma Afklimt, her story, which was told in this major Guggenheim show a couple of years ago, she was really not even paid attention to by the mainstream art world because she was a woman, because she was a mystic. And eventually she kind of rejected the art world herself and said, OK, you guys aren't ready. The world isn't ready for my work. I am deeming that it can't be shown until I think it was 20 years after her death or something like that. And contrasting that with you, you've been working for you know, more than 15 years, but last year was this big kind of embrace from the art world of you. You became the first sculptor to earn this residency at the Rubel Museum. You now are unveiling this major work at Art Basel in Switzerland. What does it feel like to bring this really kind of interior, intimate practice that is about consciousness into the kind of circus of the art world? 
You know, I think that as I move forward as an artist, I'm thoroughly on a daily basis aware of the reasons of why I get to be here today and why I get to do this work today. And it's because of the many women artists who had to basically step aside and not be able to talk and do what they could do. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how people are going to respond to it. I think I'm just putting out what I'm interested in investigating. And hopefully the people that are interested in it will help me expand on that dialogue and help me find language for it because I specialize in making. I specialize in the medium of making and in process. And I'm young and I'm figuring it out. And I have hopefully another 50 years to do that with everyone. What I do think is I think that people are very thirsty for realness and they're thirsty to understand themselves and to understand their personal contributions at this very turbulent time in our civilization and in our world. And I think artists' jobs are also for us to help to maybe ease that transition and to understand maybe the more nuanced layers of what we're experiencing through a visual language or through a performance or through something, you know, but it's all very experimental and it's really one step at a time. And I'm just hoping that people enter it with the understanding that I'm trying to figure it out and I'd like to figure it out as a collective and for us to all talk openly about how we understand the world and to leave enough space to really listen to each other. And I mean, that Rubel residency, I think, really was the first time a lot of people maybe encountered your work. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that experience maybe changed your work or pushed it in a new direction. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a twofold thing. I think first and foremost, just the making of the work itself, like working with shipping containers, working with scale has been something that I've really been working on for the last five years, just going after RFPs, going after proposals, reaching out to people, really wanting to do these projects and not really successfully being able to do that. And the Rebels, they took a chance on a sculptor on a different medium. I've been constantly trying to prove my capabilities so that I can make the work that I want to do and always make the work that I want to do. And when they made that space for me, you know, I went down there and like I had resources, I had space, I could really explore. And I think that when you offer artists the things that they need and you're just like, do what you need to do and we got you, like we're going to hold you down, really incredible things happen. And I got to get that scale out of my body. I got to see in real time and experiment with what it means to do that logistically and how I can handle that. And if I cannot... It's just opened up a whole world for me because I think a lot of people had really only understood my work either from the screen, from their phones or their computers, which is for sculpture, it's literally like the bane of my existence because my work, it's totally Mm. experiential. You cannot read it from a picture. There's so much more in its physical presence that you have to understand. You really have to take time for it. The visibility for me was really huge and people actually getting to see my work in person too, you know. You know, you were talking about how it is the bane of your existence that people think they can understand sculpture from seeing a photo of it. What is it that people don't get about your work when they just see a photo of it online? Well, it's so multifaceted. When you walk around it, you get to experience all these different faces of it, all the different sensuous qualities of it and the metal. But I think the thing that I'm talking about, the transmutation from intention to thing, is really what I'm honing in when I'm thinking about time within my work, because I'm working very hard to align myself with the things that I want to do and be able to be fully present for them when I do it. So something happens in making where 
the intention actually comes through sensorily in the work. And when you stand in front of my pieces, I really do think that they have this breathing quality. And me thinking about the atomic stature of all of my materials, there is this natural imbuing of life from my thought into the thing. And I do believe that that comes through when you stand in front of the work. I do think that there is a sense of life and breath and existence that comes through in the way that these two materials are interacting. And that's because of what I'm thinking. And you don't get that in a photo and you have to be there with it. Your Sculpture Art Unlimited is your largest work to date. It's 20 feet high and made from apricot and gray metal and green paint skin. Can you describe the process of making it? Because I think that will give listeners a better idea of what it's like to actually experience it. By means other than the known senses, which is the name of the project. It started off as a site-specific project where so much of the work that I do is about excavating the work from different locations and sites because I really think that the metal and the materials are absorbing a lot of the information. The process of making this one was a little bit different logistically because we were going to a new country to make it. I took my studio assistant, Jewel, with me, and I hired two welders from Amsterdam working there. So I had a whole team working on it. But basically, we had to get all these robotics and find the metal yard there. And everything was starting from scratch all over again. And I think that it's been a really great kind of working of that muscle of seeing like what capacity I can actually work at. But I really wanted to kind of continue to expand on the language and the things that I was looking at with the Hilma show. And like how I can continue to create more of that, just the hypnotic stature, the sensuousness and then the challenging of the metal. Like, how can I stand on this idea of the harmony that's happening within the work and within these two polarities and continue to evolve it? So there was a lot more material involved for this one. There was a lot more time involved for this one. If I'm being 100% honest with you, I went into this project just thinking that I could spend a lot more time researching, but I almost had to kind of disassociate through the part of making it this time just because it was just a whole different level of logistics that I was dealing with. And I'm still kind of figuring out what exactly that means for me in this moment. I mean, one of the things that's certainly clear for this work, but also in your work in general, is your kind of desire and comfort in taking up space. In some ways, it's rare to see female artists working at scale because they aren't given the opportunity to do it or the resources to do it or the space to do it. How did you sort of come to the decision that taking up space was going to be so central to what you do? I don't know if it's comfortable. There's definitely desire there, but I don't know if it's comfortable. Mm. And I think that very often the work is like a couple of decades ahead of me in comfortability and it's really showing me the way. And I think for me, it was really just that that was the work that I was always totally into, you know, like Anselm Kiefer and Leonardo Drew, just these really encompassing, abstract, sensorial installations, you know, like that was the work that I've always been interested since I was really young, just this intense expressionistic art. And, you know, I think One of the things that happens with me in general in this work is it's not that I'm making these decisions and it's not that it's like, oh, this is what I want to do next. It's that, oh, this is what needs to happen next. Mm. And the work is always really showing me what needs to happen next. And very often I'm not totally down for it, but like I know what's going to be the most important thing for the evolution of the work and for what's going to help create the sensibility that I'm interested in and challenging for myself. For me, seeing the Rubel work, it was just very clear to me that my paintings are really maquettes of this sensation. Hmm. 
And I was interested to learn that there is this sort of other thread of your work too, and that while you were creating the works for the Rubel show, you also began creating a graphic novel called Indelible Fluidity, in which you explored your biography more explicitly than maybe you do in the sculpture. Can you tell us a little bit about that novel and what sparked it? It started about a year before. I really love learning through artists biographically. So I read everyone's diary, <laughs> Anne Truitt, Judy Chicago, Ava Hess, like anyone's biography I can get my hands on, I'm going to read it. Because for me, when I'm looking at an artist, I'm really interested in how through their particular perceptual experience that they've decided to digest whatever research they're doing, whatever instances that are happening in the world, and then to see how that comes out in the work. So I think that that's always how I've understood life in general is through hearing other people's stories. And I think that's where I've been affected the most in my life when people have been really open enough to share their stories. And I think the more intimate, vulnerable aspects of what got them from here to there. And Indelible Fluidity looks at some challenging parts of my life and within my ancestry. And we're using art and we're using making as a portal to have pain come through you as a form of catharsis. And so we're exploring these different characters, but we're using making as an access point and as a way that we can travel as a form of healing and as a form of making more space within myself and within my work by getting it through my body and out my body and how that can be a positive thing. And it's still in the works, you know, we're still making it. It's been a pretty challenging project because I do work in abstraction and because I can kind of hide behind my materials when I feel like it. But I think for me to have to look at storytelling in a really direct way and have to kind of look at some very embarrassing things that I feel shameful about in my life and really publicly share that and how I've kind of transmuted that into this form, into these physical forms. And not that all my work comes from that. I, you know, my work always comes from so many different forms of life experience and what's going on. But I think for the graphic novel in particular, it's digging very deeply to some of the core things that have made me the person that I am today. And, and I think that that informs the work in a way, you know. Do you consider it a kind of biography or autobiography like the no, ones of other artists no. that you read and love? It started off like that because I was actually writing it like that because I feel like before this moment in my career, there was a whole 10 to 12 years before that was really tumultuous and it's been different and it's been kind of this wild ride of like how I got to this place. And I really wanted to make a space to do that because I know most people kind of wait until the end of their lives to write biographies. Judy Chicago wrote eight books. You know, she wrote so many books about her life and the different chapters of her life and what she's looking at. And I think that there's something to be said for that, because even though it is extremely embarrassing to share yourself in that way, every point of my life is a different marking to what the next place will be. And regardless of what happens, like, I think that there's a lot of significance in like the past 10 years of growing and experimenting and trying to figure things out. But it's not a biography. I think it's an insightful story of like how my mind is working and the way that I'd like to start to explore storytelling or the way that I'd like to explore biography with an artist and maybe humanize the work in some way. Because I think within the art world and within the art market and just in general, it becomes such a high thing that is so intangible. But, you know, we're really just in the studio every day, just working and taking it one step at a time. And I'm interested in maybe 
just sharing what different components make that. Mm. And let's see how that goes, you know. I love that you mentioned Judy Chicago because one of the things that I love about her is that even when the broader art market and art world was not really paying attention to her, like she said, history will want to remember me. Let me document this as I go. And just the centeredness that she had, that what she was doing was important. And if nobody else was going to document it, she was going to. You know, and now obviously she's getting overdue recognition, but it's sort of, I think in some ways that is almost the reverse of what some young artists are dealing with, where they're getting so much attention and so much market speculation at an early point in their career. And right now the market can be really treacherous for young artists and it has the potential to kind of chew them up and spit them out. And I'm wondering how you go about navigating the market and the art world with the vision that you have and that kind of intention of setting yourself up for a long career? I think that for me, because I started at such a young age, like I started working with a studio practice at a very young age. So I became very comfortable with what that means for me in making art. And I've always been pretty astute about separating my business and separating my practice in a really clear way. And they're two totally different conversations. Mm. But I think ultimately it's really just that in the past, from what I've read, there's very little documentation of the particular female perceptual experience of making art. Mm. And so I see a hole there. I see a space where it's like, cool, I like talking about my life. I'm okay to go up there and just like say what I have to say and figure out what's going on. And like, I've always been very aware of the fact that like, I will find myself and I will grow as an artist in a very public way just by being like a millennial artist, period. You know, we're on Instagram. We grew up on the internet. So like that was always a consideration for me. But what really became clear to me in the possibility that I can do this my way was when I kind of took control of the situation and knowing like I have to corral my conversations and the things that I want to talk about. And I have to work very hard to make sure that I'm continuing to go back to the work. I've just been very clear about what I want to do and what I'm interested in and what part of it that I can expand on. Like, I kind of know my place and I'm working through my place Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to understand it. And I'm an artist that like deals with aesthetics to begin with. I'm a painter in my heart of hearts. So like, where do I go from there? And like, how do I contribute to this overall ecosystem? It's about research. I think it's about really knowing what the market is and what happens there and like, It's not this big evil world. Like when you start to understand it, it's a business. And to have the foresight like Judy Chicago had and the other women artists who have made space for themselves, it's just about maybe having a little bit of confidence of trusting that what I'm doing is significant and what I'm doing is relevant. And even if it's not, at least it'll be well documented. At least it'll be true. And at least I made it. I didn't hand it over to somebody else to make it. So it's like, It doesn't matter what happens with it. What matters is that I'm doing my best to do it right. And to know that at the end of the day, when I turn around and I look at it, I know that I did everything that I could in the most ethical and graceful and beautiful way that I possibly could. And that's really like my goal at this time in my work. And can you tell us what you're working on next? You know, after Basel, where do you go from there? I'm going to the beach, baby. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to the motherfucking beach. No, I, uh, <laughs> I'm i actually going to spend a lot of time doing some more experimentations in the studio. I really want to experiment with the paint skin some more. I have a couple different variations of skins that I'm working with right now. So just continuing to evolve them into different mediums from translating it into bronze or marble and resin. And then the paint skins on their own, like how I can refine that. 
Well, I hope you get some beach time before you go back to the studio. I always find a way. Don't worry. Don't worry. I always find a way to end, <laughs> end up on that beach. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Art Angle, Kennedy. It was a real pleasure. It's honestly, it's such an honor to be here. It's such a pleasure to speak with you and to share some ideas. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Yes. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It'll help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.